This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Greetings and welcome to a special evergreen presentation edition of the Steve Day Show here on Blaze Radio, TV, and Podcast. My name is Steve Dace. His name is Todd Erzin. His name is Aaron McIntyre. Let us know what you think about what we think via the SteveDace.com inbox. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can email us. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Look for me as well on MeWe, Parlor, Gab, and Getter. And then look for clips of the show that you'd like to watch for free that are also free of all censorship at rumble.com slash Steve Day Show as well. Well, I mentioned today is a special evergreen edition. And the last time we had some evergreens for you, we we had similarly themed shows. We took some in-depth think pieces. We spent the hour reading through them, breaking them down, actually the full two hours, We got a ton of good reaction to both of those that when we saw this piece in a Jewish publication called Tablet, um, we just thought, you know what, this absolutely needs a broader airing and discussion. If you are struggling with receding hairline and male pattern baldness, you don't have to do that anymore. There's a reason our friends at Keeps are the real deal. And they've got more five-star reviews than any of their competitors because they offer the same doctor-recommended FDA-approved hair loss treatment, but the generic version, so you get those at about half the cost. And then there's everything done online, so you get all kinds of convenience. Just answer a few easy questions, snap a few pics of your hair, and then a licensed doctor reviews your info to recommend the right hair loss treatment for you. So big savings all the time with generics, convenience all the time online, and even bigger savings the first time to get you started. Half off your first order. 50% off your first order on top of all the other savings you get all the time when you go to keeps.com slash grow. K-E-E-P-S, just like it sounds, for keeps.com slash grow. Let's get you started today with that special discount at keeps.com slash grow. So before I start reading and going through this, the name of the piece is called I've Been Through This Before. Here's the subhead. Don't wear a mask. You must wear a mask. Buy a pulse oximeter. Stock up on Tylenol, vitamin D, Pepsid, whisper so you don't spit. Stand six feet from others. No 10. Wear gloves. Wear two masks. Open the windows. Close the schools. The dizzying madness of COVID and the reliance on guru-like experts has been eerily familiar. And the author's name is Ann Bauer. You guys, what did you think when you read this for yourselves for the first time? Well, I think, first of all, as I'll talk about later when we properly react to this, I, it kind of, as a, uh, as a new parent, it actually hit home in uh, a very specific way. And I'll, I'll say more about that 
later. Secondly, as well, um, the comparisons to the author's personal situation, to society's situation of, of the last two years was nothing short of incredible. And Adras drew some, drew some broader themes about how we view the world in terms of expertise, in terms of who's really calling the shots mm-hmm. that I think are just impeccable. Really put it into perspectives, into a perspective that needs to be had about the broader uh, about, about the broader war, if you want to call it, for the soul of Western civilization. I'll leave it there for now. We'll get into more specifics later, I know. But those were some of the more big picture things that, that stood out to me. It's, uh, well, she's a gifted writer, first of all, which makes this, even though it's a long read, it makes it a very easy, enjoyable uh read and i don't use enjoyable like you know lemonade and walk in the park but you know it, it she takes you to hard places in ways that you you keep wanting to go on <laughs> and that's not an easy trick when it comes uh to writing and secondly it's you 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 can't mo- at least i haven't done any deep dive research on her but it is very, very challenging to marginalize her as some kind of political operative mm-hmm. or something like that. There's just a level of unflinching authenticity to this whole thing. I mean, ultimately, a lot of this stuff in any uh, political walk of life, but certainly... With COVID, they're always trying to play gotcha with who gets it, who doesn't. The, 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 just the weight of the personality that they think is involved. I don't know. She, she's she really, really is tough to impugn. There's just you, you, she lays it out there, and either this is in fact. I mean, she she's writing about a grand psyop. That has happened before and will happen again because it is our nature to buy into these things. If she, if it is the grandest psyop of them all, if she's lying about that mm-hmm. in this whole piece, if this isn't authentic, it's actually a psyop about psyops. And you know how deep and layered can that rabbit hole possibly get? So that's my first thoughts on it. To that end, or to that point. Ann Bauer has previously been published in the New York Times, L, Salon, and Slate. I don't see The Blaze or Breitbart no. or American Greatness, right? Which I agree, I think makes what we're about to share even that much more impactful. Let us begin. In April 1939, as the result of a backdoor bribe, a 35-year-old lumber baron named Bruno Bettelheim was released from the Buchenwald concentration camp on the condition that he leave Germany and never return. So April 1939, World War II, the, which was formally launched with the invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939, 
is still about five months away. In addition to running his family's sawmills, Bettelheim had earned a degree in art history. And like many Austrians of the time, dabbled in psychoanalysis and read a bit of Freud. His wife had once cared for an emotionally disturbed child in their home. When he arrived as a refugee in the U.S., he used these random details to remake himself as an expert in human behavior. A small man with a striking Viennese accent and manner, he believed he had valuable psychological insights from the 11 months he had spent inside Dachau and Buchenwald. You can already see a parallel being drawn here, can't you? Pardon me. Back in 38, when Bettelheim was imprisoned, these were primarily work camps where prisoners were divided, stripped of their possessions, and then beaten and herded like animals by the guards. Bettelheim noted that the men most damaged by alienation and violence, the ones who gave up hope, had similar effect. They avoided eye contact, rocked and muttered, and gazed at distant objects. He felt he had witnessed what it takes to break a person's mind. Bettelheim's first job in the United States was as a research assistant at the University of Chicago. That's a top university. But he was studying high school art curricula. He divorced his wife, who had also immigrated, and taught briefly. In 1943, he published a paper titled Individual and Mass Behavior in Extreme Situations claiming to have studied more than 1,500 concentration camp prisoners. Legendary general and future president Dwight Eisenhower praised the work. Overnight, Bettelheim became a doctor and a star. On the strength of that paper, his false claim to have worked with Sigmund Freud and his status as an intellectual and refugee from Hitler's Germany, Bettelheim was made full professor of psychology and the director of the Orthogenic School for Emotionally Disturbed Children at the University of Chicago in 1944. Purely, this is pure, this is a proto version of identity politics, right? Yep. We're not even going to bother to look at the fact of what, he, what, what it was he actually did or what his area of expertise is. He just checks boxes that affirm a certain narrative. If he was around today, he would be a journalist. Nice. Once established at the school, he won a grant from the Ford Foundation to start a program specifically for autistic children. Parents from around the country sought his help for their children who were mute, withdrawn, unable to follow directions, prone to stimming or gazing at an object or blinking rapidly in delight, self-harming or failing to toilet train. In the mid-1950s, Bettelheim developed a new theory of autism based on his 1943 paper and the passing remark of a researcher named Leo Kanner, who said autistic children never defrost the refrigerator mother. Doesn't it just sound like a whole bunch of psychobabble BS? Yep. Because it was. Because it was. Bad parenting, like imprisonment in a Nazi work camp, was an extreme situation, Bettelheim said. He characterized the mothers of children in his program as cold, distant, abusive, and uncaring, like domestic SS guards. Though no studies were done to back up this hypothesis. Though no studies were done to back up this hypothesis. Though no studies were done to back up this hypothesis. His theory that rejecting mothers cause autism became the accepted science of the time. 
1967 book. So we're almost a quarter century now carrying this out. In his 1967 book, The Empty Fortress, Benelheim wrote, quote, infants, if totally deserted by humans before they have developed enough to shift for themselves, will die. And if their physical care is enough for survival, but they are deserted emotionally or are pushed beyond their capacity to cope, they will become autistic, unquote. Dr. Bettelheim enjoyed decades as a media darling. Enjoyed decades as a media darling. Enjoyed decades as a media darling. Appearing on television as a regular on the Dick Cavett Show. Serving as a top expert for newspapers such as the New York Times and Washington Post. Which credited him with, quote, originating many of the techniques and principles of modern child psychiatry, unquote. Woody Allen, when he wasn't banging his daughter, I'm sorry, Woody Allen gave the pop psychiatrist a cameo as himself in the film Zelig. Commonweal Magazine published an article titled The Holy Work of Bruno, of Bruno Bettelheim. He wrote a series of world-famous best-selling books. The refrigerator mother theory of autism became gospel, not just among psychiatrists, but in the zeitgeist. It made sense and it was easy to grasp. Better, it turned a mysterious and heartbreaking condition into a simple problem of who was to blame. People rallied behind the idea that cold mothers cause autism because it gave them comfort. Mothers whose children developed normally knew it was because they were good. Fathers and other relatives of autistic children were now off the hook. Even desperate bad mothers embraced the idea, believing that if they could fix themselves, their children would be cured. Finally, an answer. They needed to sign up for intense psychotherapy and send their autistic children to live with other families or in residential programs. Some mothers were advised to rehome their healthy children as well, lest lest their refrigerator qualities leak over and spoil another young mind. Many complied. Keep in mind, these were what we think today are the salad days, right? Mm -hmm. Of traditional Americana, right? Yeah. Occasionally, families would reject the diagnosis and their children would be taken by force. Reports were made, psychiatric teams mobilized. They showed up at the homes of autistic children, packed their bags, and removed them, while guards held off the screaming, protesting mothers who'd been deemed unsuitable. Bettelheim called this process paranectomy, a sad but necessary practice that would help autistic kids to be cured. Many were taken to, the, taken to the orthogenic school that he ran, where they stayed for up to a dozen years. You know, a, a cure that has no known end. It just keeps going. And a going. lifetime of inspirational boosters. Mm, indeed. It wasn't until 1990, after Bettelheim's death by suicide at 86. 
It wasn't until 1990. So he, he, he is given a position at the University of Chicago in 1943. And in the year I graduated from high school. Yes. The year I got my driver's license. Almost a half a century later, after he committed suicide, you know, carrying that kind of a guilty conscience around for all the damage that you have done can lead people to do things like that. It wasn't until then that residents and staff from the school began talking about his rages, name-calling, constant lying, and abuse. I would characterize the atmosphere at the orthogenic school at that time as the beginnings of a cult, with Dr. B as the cult leader, wrote a former counselor in a letter to the Chicago Reader in July of 1990. But by that point, almost 50 years of damage had been done, during which any clinician who came up with a different diagnosis or questioned Bettelheim's practices suffered immediate and devastating professional consequences. Hmm. This again is sounding vaguely familiar. In the orthogenic school, psychiatrist Richard Kaufman told the Chicago Tribune, Bettelheim's mind supplanted your own. He was, if you don't mind me adding here and to your story, America's foremost expert on childhood autism. Right? Anne writes, I was 23 when Bruno Bettelheim, a man I'd never heard of, took his own life. So she's just a few years older than us. The following year, in 1991, my three-and-a-half-year-old son, Andrew, lost language. One day he could talk, the next he was yodeling in a strange high-pitched voice, flicking the lights on and off and staring for hours as he spun a single wheel on a toy car. My then-husband and I were too young and poor to have a child, much less two. Our one-year-old had respiratory problems and asthma, which consumed time and money. We were on the edge, barely able to pay our bills and buy macaroni and cheese. It was just dawning on me that I'd married a dreamy, chaotic guy. I think that's how it's pronounced, or quixotic. Quixotic, Thank you. Quixotic guy who drank when he was troubled and couldn't hold down a job. That's what county social workers saw when they were called to assess Andrew following his meltdown at a public library. A tiny house, a fraying marriage, two depleted parents, and cheap clothes. It was winter on the Iron Range, where advances in psychology took some time to travel. The experts, a stoic North Country man and woman team, decided that we were the cause. They questioned us separately and casually brought up the idea of temporary foster care. We protested and were told we keep the boys, but o- we will keep the boys, but only if we submitted, or we could keep the boys, but only if we submitted to frequent visits and attended parenting classes twice weekly, which we gladly did. While we were being taught how to impose consequences and establish routine, Andrew and his brother were taken to a childcare room where teachers helped them sing, play, and socialize. At first, Andrew seemed to improve, brightening and even talking a bit. But then he regressed again, a pattern we'd see repeat on a loop for the rest of his life. When an older relative came to visit us in the spring, she took one one look at my four-year-old son sitting in the corner, staring at his hand, and said, You've ruined that beautiful child. You and your careless life ruined him. Aren't you 
ashamed. After all, she had read the foremost expert on childhood autism, so she Mm -hmm. knew. We eventually moved to Minneapolis where treatments were supposedly more advanced. At five, Andrew was diagnosed with autism and enrolled in a program that involved rocking boards, chewy toys, and roughing his skin with surgical brushes three times a day. We blamed ourselves for our son's problems, and most of the new theories did too. His autism was because we had, we'd had him vaccinated, because we fed him wheat or dairy or corn, because we hadn't employed a team of workers to have constant floor time with him, or apply behavioral techniques according to the Lovas method. Beloved not only by late 90s autism parents, but also by conversion therapy folks. Each new wave was certain. The approach to autism that had come before were barbaric and uninformed, but this most recent breakthrough was the one clear truth. Science had spoken over and over for a dozen years. We were heartbroken each time a treatment failed and guilty because without fail, someone would insist we hadn't tried hard enough. Sure, we'd gone gluten-free, but we had cleansed, but had we cleansed with hyperbaric oxygen? Behavioral training worked, but only if you did it 18 hours a day. Why hadn't we taken a second mortgage and flown to the Catskills for a workshop at the Sunrise Institute? Just shy of his 36th birthday, my then-husband gave in and began drinking in earnest. He lost his job and grew dark and silent. One day he apologized, hugged us all, got in his truck, and drove away. Now single, I rode the waves of hope and despair alone. There were periods of clarity when I was sure Andrew was breaking through. Adolescence was oddly hopeful. He spoke haltingly, but started playing tournament chess and riding a bike. It seemed hormones might might bring him out of childhood autism, as they do miraculously in a tiny number of boys. Years passed, during which my sons grew closer and more alike. Once, Once someone asked me, which is the autistic one? But along with better engagement, social skills, and speech, Andrew had chronic anxiety. When he started high school, a doctor friend at the university where I was teaching suggested Andrew be seen. Around the same time, there was a surge in ads for antidepressants on TV. Psychiatrists quit asking questions and plumbing the the unconscious mind, becoming like tea leaf readers in white coats who studied blood test results, but never looked their patients in the eyes. I took my son to such a person who prescribed Lexapro. This was the moment Bettelheim's work was entirely spurned by a new generation of experts who neatly whipsawed the other direction. They changed positions but held on to the religiosity. Nature was in, nurture was out. Brain chemistry became the only thing that mattered now. Everything we'd done during Andrew's childhood, talk therapy, sensory integration, cross-patterning, behavior training, biofeedback, they now rejected as quackery. Notice there's no plumb line here. There never is. There never is. You know, there's no plumb line of what is the true origin and purpose of human life? Right? Yep. So we're just going to vacillate from one extreme, nurture, to the other, nature. Andrew responded oddly to Lexapro, as he did to so many things, becoming obsessive and manic, wandering all night. The boy's father had resurfaced with a new wife who happened to work for a pharmaceutical company. I, too, was recently remarried. The four of us met to discuss the situation, and I was relieved to have help for the first time in years. But soon we were at odds. My husband, John, and I wanted to take Andrew off the Lexapro, but my ex and his wife insisted he really needed something even stronger. Drug harder. 
When we finally saw the autism specialist we'd spent six months waitlisted for, he was entirely on their side. This would have been during, a, you know, every little boy that doesn't want to sit still in school all day, drug him with Ritalin, right? Mm-hmm. Your son is suffering from a neurological disease, and I won't permit you to withhold medication that will help him, the doctor said, looming just like the, those North Country social workers. I would call that abuse. He put Andrew on Abilify, an atypical antipsychotic that ran commercials during the news. John and I asked for a trial of something milder or more tested, but the psychiatrist insisted older therapies were inferior and wouldn't work. Weeks later, my son turned 18 and I lost the power to control his medical decisions. I watched as the doctor and my ex-husband, both large and posing men, insisted he take the drug. It's possible Andrew developed psychosis at exactly the same time he began taking psychiatric drugs. That my ex and the doctor were right, and I was wrong. It's also possible that his brain was fragile, and the drugs that were loaded into it. Over time, his doctor added Risperdal and a little Depakote, Depakote, I think that's how that's pronounced, melted his circuitry, causing decomposition. But each time I raised the question... I was lectured. Andrew should have been medicated earlier. I'd been negligent. The doctors were playing catch-up. It would take at least three months to see benefits, possibly six. Just wait three months. Just wait two weeks. I must not think of taking him off because withdrawal was dangerous. We can't have a random controlled study of masks. Because to have a random a, a control group that doesn't have masks is just too dangerous, right? Isn't that what Fauci said? Mm. Two doctors threatened to report me for mistreatment of a vulnerable adult if I tried. I wrote an article for a local magazine telling our story and questioning the widespread use of antipsychotics. A University of Minnesota psychiatrist, where is Dr. Michael Osterholm, one of the chief Biden COVID advisors from? Up there in the Twin Cities. University of Minnesota, yeah. A University of Minnesota psychiatrist, director of autism services, submitted a scathing rebuttal calling me an anti-science not. Let's stop there. We got about three minutes. Thoughts so far? Well, uh, same as it ever was. This is a a biblical admonition. There's nothing new under the sun. Why do they keep pulling the same kind of scams? Because the same kind of scams work. Did God really say? Every every lie is ultimately some derivative of that. You know, you hear so much talk these days about vaccines and masks and variants. Not a lot about proactively taking better care of yourself, uh, practicing better lifestyle habits. One of the ways you can do that uh, is with our friends over at Brickhouse Nutrition. They've got an outstanding drink. It's part of my daily regimen called Field of Greens. It is loaded with real USDA organic fruits and vegetables. Notice the plural there. It's not just one super fruit or super vegetable. It is 18 of them. Uh, all clinically researched, and did I mention real USDA organic certified. It tastes great too, but if you need a little extra oomph, you can mix it in with any water-based drink. And I mix it in with water and a little packet of sugar-free Hawaiian punch. That's how I drink mine every single day. Maybe you have a different way. They've got different flavors, but trust me, it will be worth it. And you can try it right now with the promo code Steve to get 15% off your first order. When you go to BrickHouseSteve.com with the promo code Steve, 15% off at BrickHouseSteve.com.
Aaron, you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think on this particular topic, you, you talk about a, a plumb line. There is no plumb line here. There's no even plumb line, no definition of what actually is autism. Because it seems from the get-go, all of the out with the old, in with the new, vacillating from one extreme to the other. I mean, she just des- described she went through three eras of how to treat autism. First, it was the uh, nurture. Then it was the uh, kind of a different version of nurture. It was kind of the crunchy thing. And then thirdly, it was completely and totally chemistry. Maybe God just makes some kids differently. Maybe God just makes some human beings differently. Maybe what we think is autism is just is just a little bit different. You know, I, I don't doubt that autism is a, a real thing. That's not what I'm saying here. But you notice each step of the way, Andrew is being judged by what somebody else thinks he should be and not being seen as an image bearer of God on any level. That part of the story is just, it, it gets worse here, her story, but this part of the story is infuriating. This is the third time I've either read it or listened to it, and it is infuriating. So when we come back, we will continue Anne's story and the obvious parallels to what we're suffering from and experiencing today here in just a moment. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network. the truth no matter where it leads the steve day show back here on a special evergreen edition of the steve day show we are going through a phenomenal piece over at the jewish publication tablet written by ann bauer called i have been through this before well you know i love talking about built bar it is the absolute most fantabulous delicious protein bar you've ever had Easy on the tummy, not loaded with carbs, calories, and sugars, packed with all kinds of flavor, and then packed with the protein you're looking for. It's like, wow, why didn't anybody ever invent a healthy candy bar? They did. It's called Built Bar. Try all of their absolutely outstanding flavors. They've debuted several new ones here during the holiday season, all covered in 100% real chocolate. All right? Share them with everybody you know. That's what I do. Because that's how great this product is. So give it a shot right now. Use my last name, Dace, D-E-A-C-E, as your promo code to get 15% off when you get Built Bars on their website at Built.com. Built.com. Use the promo code Dace to get 15% off your order today. Built.com. Promo code Dace. 
We pick up the story now. Her autistic son, Andrew, is now a grown man. And Anne writes, Andrew went from a shy, smart, autistic teenager to a stuporous man who gained 100 pounds and erupted in rage. My ex and his wife faded away around the time a county worker told a judge our son was out of control and the state of Minnesota mandated electroshock, which in 2011 was a common practice. John and I sued and ended up with a court-appointed guardian who was granted all powers of control over Andrew's life and later was indicted for doping his clients and stealing from them. Trust the experts. Mm-hmm. Listen to the system. Everywhere she goes in this system, it is corrupted. Again, we went to court this time and we won. In 2014, John, her second husband, remember, became Andrew's legal guardian and began the process of detoxing him from the most dangerous medications. For two years, we lived quietly. Andrew in an apartment complex for adults with autism. Us in a small house, we planned to will to him and his brother, who had been asked to be a successor guardian. Every Sunday, we had dinner together and took a walk. Andrew had grown into himself, resigned and weary. No longer angry, he lived in easy silence and aged precipitously, appearing decades older. When we went out, he and I, people assumed he was my husband, this tall, grave, balding man. On a dazzling Friday morning in November of 2016, Andrew was found dead on the floor of his living room. John got the call and took me to a park near our house, a wash with crisp red and orange leaves to tell me the news. Fall has filled me with dread ever since. My son was 28 years old when he died. An autopsy was performed, but no official cause of death was found. Notice there are no answers here for this family ever. The truth is elusive. They can't provide them anything definitive. Nothing. Does this sound familiar at all? Very. At all. Traditional methods of suicide were ruled out. Yet he told me at our last dinner that there was no happiness for him in this world, seeming clearer of mind than he had been in years. He'd wiped his phone and computer and erased his music from Spotify. When we cleaned out his apartment, there was a pile of foil-wrapped pharmaceuticals in the back of a drawer. But the coroner's report showed low or normal levels of only two drugs in his blood, neither withdrawal nor overdose. My personal explanation is that he was tired of being controlled by the fickle czars of autism, and he was just done. The time between 2016 and 2019 is mostly lost to me. Grief, it turns out, doesn't feel like sadness. It's more like terror. Being chased through oily blackness. My husband, younger son, and I isolated. We drank. We drove looking for Andrew. He'd loved mountains, South Dakota, Colorado, Oregon. We swore we felt him in the trees. We'd started to function again slowly by late 2019. In January 2020, we traveled to Bellevue, Washington for a conference where John was speaking. I fell ill soon after with a fever and breathless cough I couldn't shake for six weeks. This friend of ours, corporate lawyer with business in China, raised an eyebrow and told us a pandemic was coming. All around there was tension, something uncontrolled and wicked in the air. John is an internet security expert with a background in mathematics. He'll often talk about the shape of a problem. This is its outline, its gestalt. 
He envisions it's like dots on a chart or waves on a graph. I see holographic images, the shape of an ambitious refugee, white coats and flim-flam men glimmering under the figures we see today. In March, April, May, familiar shapes began to emerge. Suddenly, there emerged a cadre of pandemic experts who recommended, then quickly required, extreme and unprecedented things. People shouldn't see their parents, visit friends, hold funerals, or hug. We should never shake hands again. Remember when Fauci said that? I'll probably never shake hands again. Remember Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Wearing masks was useless. We must mask, both indoors and out. There were hotlines set up in many cities, including mine, for citizens to report their neighbors who did not comply. Police were sent to break up a Jewish funeral in New York City. Day after day, media rained down information about who was to blame. Millennials, spring breakers, southerners, motorcyclists. Scientists who proposed different theories were muffled, derided, sidelined. They were deemed dangerous. Their ideas misinformation. To question was sacrilege. I had lived through all of this before. In the last days of May 2020, police murdered a man in my city, setting off worldwide mass protests. But these gatherings were proclaimed to be different, sanctified. A service was held indoors, packed with people, including an unmasked U.S. senator and our Minnesota governor who'd pledged to send the National Guard to break up anyone else's funeral. They sang and gripped hands. This, too, was blessed by those in charge. Just as they had all the years of my son's life, recommendations changed at a furious pace, echoed by not only public health officials, but their inner circle of a tech giant, a nutritionist. That's a reference to that what's-his-face guy. Ding. Yeah, thank you. Uh, a sociologist, a healthcare entrepreneur, which now enjoyed the support of both the U.S. government and the monopoly tech platforms that control what we are allowed to see and read. The experts rocketed beyond the reach of scientific gravity into an evidence-free atmosphere where every passing theory became law and truth. Let's stop there. Thoughts? It's like this is there's a, a Pauline quality. This does read like an epistle to what she's it? doing. Yes, um, her husband is. I know she's Jewish, but her husband is John, and his son's name is Andrew. Right? Then again, they were all Jews too. <laughs> that's what I can't. You know that the narrative of the epistles in how he walks you through. Um, there's a Socratic, one man Socratic dialogue quality uh, always to it. Uh, Asking questions, and you, I, like I said, I'm now hearing it a second time. Again, just she's so steady in her mission. Uh, she's the dots. Th- this is what you know. Here's what we do. Uh, we, she's 
talking to you about fake experts and how they clearly glob onto that, often covering up their own weaknesses, their own insecurities uh, with this scam. And that's why those who question are so easily marginalized, mm -hmm. cause names. She's giving you uh, the 180 degree, while complaining about those experts, and rightly so, she herself is showing how an expert functions. She's an expert from lived experience. And a lived experience weighed and measured through very hard trials and harshness. Listen, a lot of people these days have their lived experience and say, my truth, my truth, my truth. She's, she absolutely does not want to be part of that scam. You can feel that through every part of this. She's, just, she's being raw, giving you every bit about her, weaknesses and all, to show that I, I've, I've been given a very roughly run understanding of the truth and the lies that seek to defeat it. I, you, you, there's, you can't do better in terms of this long-form writing than what you're hearing here. In this piece so far, you'll notice amongst all the cast of characters, they're real people, not characters, but in this narrative, John, Andrew, uh, herself, the ex-husband, the ex-husband's new wife, the uh, Dr. B, the North Country uh, psychotherapists or whatever they were called. Amongst this entire cast of characters, she's must, she must have introduced us to, what, a dozen people so far? Mm -hmm. In multiple who, states. In multiple states. Who is the person that paid the highest price? Her son. The most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I'm just getting angry again listening to this. Who is paying the highest price? of the, this term was used earlier to describe her ex-husband, the quixotic experts, the fickle nature of the experts. The kids don't know. Well, the kids know something weird is happening. The kids know this is not really right. Kids have the most sensitive BS meters, I would say. But there are kids, after all. They're just doing what the grown-ups Tell them to do. They can't see your face, but it's what mom and dad, it's what Mrs. S, my teacher, said that we have to do because there's a scary pandemic. There's a scary virus. None of my friends are dying, but it's a scary virus and I have to mask up. Pretty soon it's a scary virus and I got to take this shot. Pretty soon after that it's a scary virus. But now I'm in the hospital with myocarditis at age 8, 9, 10. And then on the other end of the spectrum as well. The grandparents who stayed inside for a year because their kids were too afraid. Either of exposing them or them exposing their kids or them. The grandparents that got to, that had to miss all of those, year, all of those milestones in their grandchildren's lives. 
all the grandparents who just waited for the vaccine to come, but maybe couldn't wait long enough because they came down with COVID and they were told to stay home by the experts until they're blue in the face by the experts. So they got intubated by the experts and basically the experts flipped a coin and whatever, whatever side came up, the, 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 the point is the same. The most vulnerable are always the victims of the fickle expert class. And I think that's been expertly pointed out here so far. At, at the origin of this, I think, you see you, you see the fruits of the zeitgeist we live in, the, the spirit of the age that dominates Western culture. The idea that there is a solution to everything. Everything can be cured. Everything can be perfected. And if we find something we cannot cure with our own hands or our own, uh, the, the knowledge we have at the time, it isn't because we're not little gods. It isn't because we're insufficient beings. It's because you're insufficient. Right? The idea that it, it could just be this just happens in a sinful world and we don't know why and um, and if we looked instead at everything we could do to make people who suffer from this affliction's lives as normal and purposeful as possible, as opposed to the idea that everything can be cured and perfected, we might make a lot more advancements. Because what if it can't be cured and perfected? Is, quote unquote, the science going to admit its limitations? No. Because it's a rival religion. It's not going to admit it's not transcendent. It's not going to admit it lacks omniscience. Because to admit these things means I can't use this to rule over you any longer. So therefore, you must be defective. These, mo- these must be bad moms. You didn't wear your mask right. Wear your mask harder. It's not that it ever fails. It's that you failed it. She used a word in here earlier, cult. That's what I'm describing now, a cult. In a cult, you set aside what is best for you as an individual or as an individual family. And and you serve the group even at the expense of your own individual well-being. Well, Steve, doesn't Christianity call for us to do that? Yes, but not from a premise standpoint. The original premise of Christianity is that now you and I as individuals get to have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. We as individuals are made in his image. We as individual now can boldly approach the throne of grace. What a cult says is you can't do any of those things as an individual, but only through the group. Only through the access to the group. 
And for that access comes at a cost. Group think. Hour two is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Back with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. This is a special evergreen edition. I'm Steve Dace. He's Todd Erzin, and he is Aaron McIntyre. You are you. Let us know what you think about what we think via the SteveDace.com inbox. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can email us there. D-E-A-C-E, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Look for me as well, Steve Dace on MeWe, Parlor, Gab, and Getter. And then look for clips of the show on rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show that you can both watch for free, but then are also free of censorship. Again, rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show. And if you are a podcast listener to the show, thank you so very much you played a big role in the explosive growth of this program. If you wouldn't mind doing one more little thing for us, leave us a five-star review. If you like us, hit subscribe or follow. You can do those things on the podcast platform of your preference. Thanks to all of you that have done those things for us already. You know, trying to buy or sell a home is a stressful time in even regular times, prosperous times, let alone in unprecedented times. Ding. Thank you. Such as this. Was that a substitute ding? I believe that it was. All right. That's why you need to make sure you get a real estate agent that you can trust. Oh, that's easier said than done, Steve. Where would I look? Well, the name kind of says it all. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Now, you might be thinking, well, how do I know I can trust that? Well, if you're a Blaze TV watcher, viewer, uh, podcast listener, chances are you trust our patriarch around here, Glenn Beck, right? Well, good. Because this, this company is his. It was his idea. Tired of real estate agents that talked a good game but then didn't deliver when needed the most? They didn't want that to happen to you. That's why they started the company that has the website with the name that says it all. Head over there now before you get involved in the market. Make sure you've got an agent you can trust, and you're going to find them at realestateagentsitrust.com. During this special edition Evergreen show, we are going through a fantastic piece in Tablet Magazine called I've Been Through This Before by Ann Bauer. We're going to get through the final portion of the piece here in this segment. Then we'll spend the rest of the show discussing its clear parallels to the world in which we live in right now. Anne writes, The year of COVID continued with a drumbeat of warnings nationwide. Sanitize your mail with bleach and a UV light. Don't wear a mask. You must wear a mask. Buy a pulse oximeter. Stock up on Tylenol, vitamin D, Pepsid. Form a pod. Get an air filter. Whisper so you don't spit. Stand six feet from others, no ten. Wear gloves. Put on goggles because the virus can get in through your eyes. Don't pet the dog. Keep your teenager in the garage. Isolate a sick toddler in your basement with a bell. Wear two masks. Stay out of restaurants, nail salons, gyms. Open the windows. Close the schools. Finally, the vaccines came. And they seemed at first to be a miracle. 
But still, there were certain things you weren't allowed to discuss, like side effects, transmissibility, and natural immunity. The shots were immaculate and all-powerful. Then suddenly, they were not. Vaccinations were undone by the unvaccinated. They couldn't save the faithful because of the sinful. That. Let those with ears to hear, let them hear. Because that'll preach right there. And the drug alone wasn't enough. True believers wore a mask as well as those who did not were causing the cure to fail. Whatever the experts said on television became reality, became science. Meanwhile, people died and died and died. And just as the ongoing tragedy of autism of a child was somehow the mother's fault over and over again, doctors and officials blamed their audience of three billion for the disease. The more the cures failed, the greater the fault of the public. The flaw was never in the remedy, but in those who failed to behave and therefore brought the plague upon themselves. After schools were closed and our city shut down in March of 2020, I lay awake nights imagining all the children like my son who were mute, sensitive, bound to routine, friendless, friendless, in desperate need of services and incapable of learning on Zoom. The adults with already isolating disabilities whose programs and activities supported jobs and social work visits were canceled. The ones who returned with COVID, the ones who, re, who were returned with COVID to their group homes and left to die. Occasionally, I'd panic, my heart pounding, and my husband would awaken to comfort me. More than once, he actually said these words, It's okay. You can sleep. Andrew is gone. But I was haunted, driven, obsessed the way my child, the way my child with autism had been. It was so clear to me that politicians and public health were flailing and doing harm. With every new order and unprecedented decree, I saw the shape of that army of autism experts. I questioned everything, school closures, lockdowns, masks, talking compulsively about the inevitable consequences, the ways we were breaking people. Fully half of my friends, people who sat with me in the hours after my son's death, quit speaking to me in 2020. My editors, clients, and work colleagues simply disappeared. Of the friends who remain, most are sympathetic but also loyal to the COVID narrative and therefore frustrated by my stance. They've suggested that I don't trust today's experts because I'm so broken by my past. And I cannot swear this isn't true, but are today's experts provably better than past experts? If the experts are never wrong, folks, you'd still be giving your kids cough syrup with heroin, drinking real cocaine with your Coca-Cola, and your physician would be giving you his recommended cigarette brand, especially if you're pregnant. But are today's experts provably better than past experts? Why should that be? Perhaps I learned from experiences that other people were fortunate enough not to have until now. In the end, what I believe doesn't really matter. History will out. 10 or 15 or 25 years from now, there will be a reckoning, deep research, a spate of biographies and memoirs from the people who spent 2020 and 2021 under the sway of the gurus. News media that trumpeted their wisdom and methods will issue brisk, researched, documentary-style reports. People will swarm out of the shadows to claim they didn't really believe the experts embodied science and were secretly resisting all along. 
Even those who preach their gospel and strong-arm the public's obedience will insist they actually did not. They insisted these things in Nuremberg, too. I have not ever, nor did I ever, participate in implementing, enforcing, or deploying the final solution. They all said this. How about Fauci in front of Rand Paul? No doubt. I did not cause the virus that causes COVID-19. I didn't even ask you that, bro. Back to Anne. Because controversy sells, stories may get lurid and over the top. The whipsaw effect. A few of the people who worked with Bettelheim, such as Dr. Jacqueline Sanders, who was his second-in-command and successor as director of the orthogenic school, felt the pendulum swung too far upon his death. He was never the oracle media made him out to be, Sanders said, but he began his career with a true desire to help. Then came the media spotlight, the book deals, celebrity status, and wealth. What started as medicine became corrupt, bombastic certainty. Is she still talking about Bettelheim here? I'm not sure. Okay. A willingness to destroy people if it meant never having to admit he was wrong. There were no studies to support Bettelheim's work. There were no studies to support Bettelheim's work. There were no studies to support Bettelheim's work. Joan Beck reminded readers in her 1997 Chicago Tribune article, setting the record straight about a fallen guru, so he required the unquestioning, devout allegiance of his team to constantly remake reality so that it conformed to his recommendations. Again, are we still talking about Dr. Bettelheim here? Maybe. We're talking about this guy maybe right here. After Bettelheim's death, when allegations of abuse started streaming in from both workers and residents, a journalist and former literary editor at The Nation, Richard Pollack, began working on a memoir about his brother, who had been a resident at the orthogenic school. Among the things Pollack uncovered in his research for The Creation of Dr. B, a biography of Bruno Bettelheim, under Bettelheim's directorship, researchers routinely mislabeled children as autistic or retarded who were not, in order to raise their cure rate and increase funding and grants. In his 2007 book, Madness on the Couch, Blaming the Victim in the Heyday of Psychoanalysis, science writer Edward Dolnick reported that papers showed Bettelheim knew his methods couldn't cure autism back in 1964, but he continued publishing pushing the refrigerator mother theory and removing children from their families for decades anyway. Admittedly, only in his final manuscript, published posthumously, that, quote, nobody knows how to treat these children, unquote. Since Bettelheim took his life, the orthogenic school has undergone major changes. Their own family handbook makes glancing reference to Bettelheim's, quote, highly controversial theories and credits him briefly for drawing attention to the problem of autism. This is how cults retcon. This is why if you ask a member of who, a member of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who their founder was, they'll give you a name of somebody who's actually not their founder because they've scrubbed their original founder because he admitted under oath in court that he doesn't know how to read Hebrew or um, uh, Greek. Is that a problem? 
Should be. If you're writing your own version of the Bible, you don't know how to read Hebrew and Greek? Should be. Because what was what languages was the entire Bible written in? Those. Those two? That would be an issue, right? Yeah. In 2014, the school moved from the somber brick buildings where it had been housed for almost 100 years to a sunny campus in Chicago's Woodlawn neighborhood. Earlier this year, they announced they are closing their residential program for good. At some point, I cannot say when, because there were years that went by like dark water, I went to Chicago and visited the site of the old orthogenic school where Bruno Bettelheim once ruled. A psychiatry fellow I'd contacted showed me around, talking gravely about the bizarrely ignorant methods that had once dominated his field. You know, like the 90s. He showed me the rooms where the children lived, far from their parents, in the courtyard where, in Bettelheim's era, there had been a statue in the shape of a mother that he'd encourage his young male students to urinate on. I don't know what I thought I'd find there. Maybe I was looking for the answer to how terribly and repeatedly we as people can get our responses to nature so wrong. Let me repeat that sentence. Maybe I was looking for the answer at how terribly and repeatedly we as people can get our responses to nature so wrong. Over the years, you guys have asked me a lot if I could ask one question at a presidential debate, what would I ask? Or what have I, what have I always answered? Is human nature basically Is human good? nature basically good? That's what I would ask. Because that question alone will give me a window to the soul. Almost all the worst terrors ever unleashed in this world began with the wrong answer to that question. That's why those who seek and preach utopia always end up being the worst of tyrants. I don't know Anne's real religious background. I don't know if she's just culturally Jewish. I don't know if she's practicing. I don't know what branch of Judaism she claims is her own. But this statement right here, folks, is some mere orthodoxy for you. Maybe I was looking for the answer to how terribly and repeatedly we as people can get our responses to nature so wrong. And now her conclusion. The courtyard was empty, brilliantly sunny. The brick buildings were old and graceful, like hallowed monuments to science. I had to remind myself there were decades of abuse, psychological terror, and forced separation from parents within the walls of this place. And for all those years, staff watched and participated without a single one of them speaking out. I think about what's gone on in our hospitals for the last two years. If you test positive for COVID, there's nothing we can do. Go home, self-isolate seven to 10 days. See if you develop symptoms. And then if you do, we have no treatments for you. We'll just send you home until you can no longer breathe on your own or your blood oxygen level depletes too low 
and then we'll put you in an ICU and maybe on a ventilator where it is literally a flip of a coin whether you get out of there or not. Over 60, actually take that back, over 100 studies on ivermectin's effectiveness within a cocktail to treat COVID. I can't give it to you. It doesn't work. It's a, it's a cattle dewormer. So, Ann, if you don't mind, with a tip of the cap, I would like to paraphrase your final sentence for you with an update, which I think you'll probably approve of. And for all those months, staff watched and participated without a single one of them speaking out. An absolutely fantastic piece. I can see why so many of you sent it to us. By the time you sent it to me, Aaron had already sent it to us. And after I read it, I'm like, guys, this has to be our next evergreen, is discussing this piece and breaking it down. So we have the rest of the hour now. It's open, Jim. The floor is open. Who wants to go first? Well, I'll start out. I'll start out with just a personal note as well for the first half of this story before the parallels of her story um, with with the COVID narrative. I will just say it's been, uh, at, at the time we're recording this, um, my son is about 13 weeks old. And uh, as I've noted before, and, and it's a lot better now he's basically sleeping through the night now which is which is awesome but we had a lot of uh, of trouble just figuring out this baby and how to get him to calm down and and sleep you know the first few weeks pretty common stuff uh it was just made difficult because nobody really prepared us for the the calming down type of thing and he just he would go hours and hours and hours without sleeping and we were concerned because you know babies need to sleep and uh, it, was a, it was a long, arduous process of getting him to sleep. We would have good days and, and very bad days. We'd have one good day in, and like three or four bad days of, of sleep in a row. And um, Bella and, and to an extent, both of us, you know, we would do research and this expert would say this, this expert would say this, this mom and parent would say this and this and this and this. And uh, to, to varying degrees, we would, we would just beat ourselves up. You know, what are we doing wrong here? Are we harming our, our child? And it was re- a reminder in reading this, especially the first half, getting a baby to sleep. Again, I'm not into, into the comparison game. I know it's not the same thing as, as autism or more challenging conditions. But it's a reminder that, one... God gives you, especially the mother as, as parents, unique insights. It's your kid. It's your baby created exactly the way God wanted him to be created. Even very early on. Um, the experts, the experts, they um, most often, some of them are very talented some of them are very good at what they do. 
but listening, but listening to the expert's word as gospel is just categorically wrong. I might even say that it's sinful to some degree. And it was almost, it was honestly a little bit convicting. Why are we free? Just, this is the way that it is right now. We have some, we have some good things that we can uh, go in our toolbox as parents to do this, but just accepting, you know what, just the way that he is right now, that's okay. And it's a good reminder because I'm sure, and I've been told as well, uh, you know, as soon as you, as soon as you make an adjustment to the way the kid is, the baby is now, wait for a couple of weeks, things are going to be different. It's just a good reminder. You can be as prepared as you want to be. Uh, But at the end of the day, you know, he's, He's a unique little human. So just on a personal note, I will say that was a, that was a good takeaway uh, for me. And then on, on kind of a, a more meta theme note, this is the third time I've mentioned this now. First time I read this by myself right here. Second time I actually took it home and read it out loud to Bella for the reasons I just mentioned. And the third time hearing it was now. Uh... And each time, I'm just shaking my head. What are we doing? How could we do this? Well, it's actually pretty, th- pretty simple. The root of this is, did God really say? That's mm-hmm. the root of all. That's the root of all sinfulness. Did God really say? Because what we're talking about here is not just a human psychos- uh, psychosis phenomenon. Maybe part of it. What we're talking about here is not, um, is not any level of uh, mass delusion uh, in this particular arena, even though that's a big part of it. What we're talking about here is not necessarily just solely greed. What we're talking about here is fundamentally sin. That's what we're talking about with COVID and with the experience she had with autism. And it's what you brought up earlier, Steve. When you accept the premise of John Lennon's imagine, you reject the notion that these are just some of the things that we have to deal with in a sinful, fallen world. Things get, when you accept the premise of imagine, when you accept the premise of utopia, when you accept the premise of, I don't really know if God really said... Life becomes infinitely more wicked, infinitely more hard, infinitely, infinitely less free. Because you spend your days toiling. You spend your days on the labors of Sisyphus, trying to roll that rock up the hill Mm. and making no progress whatsoever. Because you do everything in your own power, because that's all there is. There's no religion, there's no framework, there's no plumb line by which to explain the madness, the sadness, the disease around you. What we're talking about here is not just some sort of mass psychosis event. It's part of it. You can, you can slap that label on here. What we're talking about here is sin. You might remember that earlier this year, had a bit of an issue with our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom, not because I don't respect them, but because I do, because they could very well be the most successful uh, constitutional conservative legal firm 
that we have in the country, in our movement. And so when they are sitting out during a period of time against COVID stand that we really need, uh, we really need their their record, their resume. I was disappointed. That's why I'm just as excited now that they are getting involved in the fight. So excited. I made a donation myself. They are taking on Biden's unethical, immoral, unconstitutional vaccine mandates. If you want to help them do that, if you're looking for some year-end giving towards a good cause, they do all this pro bono. So they get by on nonprofit uh, donations from people like us. All right, go to adflegal.org slash Steve. Make the same. Make a donation just like I did to push back on this wickedness. ADFlegal.org slash Steve is where to go. ADFlegal.org slash Steve. That's a homily right there. That'll preach. I want to make sure I draw a clear distinction here, by the way. Acknowledging that we live in a fallen world does not mean we have to be resigned to the symptoms of that. We were still given our intellect by our creator, right? We were still giving our, our ingenuity, our creativity, our initiative by our creator, right? Right. But it's an acknowledgement of our limits in addressing that. There won't be a cure for everything. That doesn't necessarily mean you stop striving to find cures for everything. But if you operate under the assumption that within the natural world, there will, there will, we will find a materialistic solution to all that ails us as a species and all that ails this creation. You are signing yourself up for the did God really say Gnosticism that Aaron talks about. And I love the fact that she referred to experts as gurus. That's really, that's a spiritual term. That's what we're talking about here. You guys remember early on in COVID, in our pushback against COVID, I, I used the analogy of going on a, a tour of the Grand Canyon with a renowned geologist. You guys remember I used this mm-hmm. analogy. Let me reset it for a second. So I go on a, a, a tour of the Grand Canyon with a renowned geologist. Would I presume to, even if I'm well-read and well-versed and well-studied on this as a layman, I'm not going to sit here and argue with him about rock and sediment formations and things of that nature, right? Right. I'm going to defer to him. I might, if I'm, if I'm not sure he's right, I'm, I'm, I might ask questions, but I'm not going to walk in there with some kind of haughty spirit like I know more than he does, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I'm in there. I'm practicing humility from the beginning of this. From the beginning of this exchange with him on this tour, I walk in with a spirit of humility. This is that's why I'm paying him. That's why I'm taking his tour. He's a renowned expert. A renowned, worldwide, world-renowned geologist who better to give us a tour of the Grand Canyon. But then what happens if like a half an hour into it, he stops, takes a deep breath, looks at the, the majesty of all in front of you and says, man, to think all of this occurred, all that we feast our eyes on here is because of millions of years of evolution. Now, see, that's the moment where I'm going to go Columbo and say, yeah, I got one more thing. I got to call BS on that. Because now we've, now we have left the realm of his expertise and we have crossed over into his own worldview bias. Like we used to say last year, where does the expertise end and the worldview bias begin? Right? Now he seeks to impose a certain view upon you. 
By the way, that means he's no longer practicing science. This is a dogma. This is a dogma, too, what, what Anna's talking about. There must be a solution. There must be a reason. This isn't unique. There's a scene in the Gospels where someone comes to Jesus, as his own disciples do, actually. And they ask him, who sinned that caused this man to be born blind? Meaning, who in his family sinned and God punished them with a blind kid? And Jesus looks at him like, is this real life? And says, this man was born blind so that when this day came, I would be here to heal him in order to testify to who I am. Meaning like this was part of a larger plan here, like what Aaron was alluding to. I don't know. Maybe we will find out in 10 or 20 years if we last that long that it's actually autistic folks will be able to have, be, have some way of thinking in their brains that they're going to be the people like crack the code of like cold fusion or some clean energy mathematical solution quadratic equation we don't understand of like interstellar travel or something. We don't know any of that stuff, right? We don't know because here's what we do. We take the guy, we take the scientist in Hungary who thought, you know, too many women are dying giving childbirth. Maybe I should just wash my hands before I put my hands on them and in them. And they called him a quack and they drove the guy into anxiety disorder and depression. And then they cornered him and convinced him to join an insane asylum, have himself committed. And then once there, they put him in straight jackets, rubber rooms and electroshock therapy. And he died. When we refuse to admit there is sin in the world... We refuse to admit our own limitations. And when we refuse to admit our own limitations, we make ourselves out to be God. We make for very bad gods. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. So that the world may know, this is Steve Dace. Want to again thank Ann Bauer, writing for the Jewish publication Tablet. I have been through this before, and this is just a fantastic piece. Uh, you did a lot of our work for us here on this Evergreen episode, and in exchange, Ann, we are happy to share this with an even broader audience. Uh, and expose your excellent work here to as, help you expose it to as many people as we possibly can. So again, not knowing your politics or ideology, just um, we got your back as co-critical thinkers and greatly appreciate Ann's work here. All right, Todd, final segment of the show. Aaron kind of gave his follow-up view and I responded to it. The floor now, brother, is yours. Well, what we have here is another Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. It's its own narratives, its own shibboleths, uh, and the language confusion. I don't know. I'd be interested to see based on um, 
Stephen Aaron's uh, background as evangelicals, if there's any reasoning like this. But I, I'd, ultimately, here we are in the 21st century. Uh, the, we are actual language scatters us less than ever before we there are common uh i mean there was there was latin but now there's english is very much a a lingua franca if you will uh, heck you're not even going to need you're going to have universal translators perhaps before steve and i are dead uh, where you don't you don't even need to have interpreters i mean the, so but the yet the bible talks about being scattered by language well it's it's not just the sounds that we grunt out to be understood it's way more that it's the narrative mm-hmm. it's the storytelling that's really we built that then think about what steve just said uh, before in the last segment we're terrible gods but we persist in it this is not a this is not a new thing we've always done this we built that tower and we built that tower to replace god and those multiple languages ultimately exploding exploding across the world to me are clearly saying that you you you, by not trusting me you will get lies not fourfold not 40 fold but 400 fold it, this has always been story. You, you, once you say, "Did God really say?" All bets are off. We are, and we just keep wandering further and further and further east of Eden. There's, there's comfort. It is one of the grandest comforts that I've experienced during COVID, is to see. The, the timelessness of God's justice coming out of the Bible, his long-suffering, the fact that there is nothing new under the sun, the fact that the Old Testament makes as much sense as ever. We are very much living an Old Testament tale here in the smartest time in history because there's nothing about our progressiveness, how advanced we are, our technology, in fact, here, sitting at the cool kids' table uh, in high school has nothing on the meanness, the cruelty, the depravity, the lies on the cool kids' table of the expert class. Just think, under the progressive banner uh, since the onset of the uh, 20th century, sure, murder, bloodshed in the name of religion, before that, of course, um, but progressivism has very much been hold my beer on that front. Uh, th- they relish a good killing field as much as anybody else. Why? Because that's how they paper off paper over their weakness. We're not allowed to do that as Christians. We still try. The three of us in this room still try in our weakest moments. But ultimately, no. The only the only reason. Uh, any of this ultimately matters is that we need to humble ourselves to the fact that we need a savior. Sin must be overcome. 
They, they don't, they don't believe that. Progressives just simply do not believe that. They believe that any narrative will do to give them power because power is what makes them feel better, not truth. Yep, power is salvation. Yes. And so they're, they're drug addicts. Why wouldn't they? I mean, really, these are Pavlov's dogs experiments. You know, they're just constantly ringing the bell. And the worst part about it all is, and here's the, the I mean, the, the church is as complicit in that as ever before. My goodness, the hollowness, I've just, the, the, the fear that's in the eyes of so many parishioners. They, they go there, they're masking up harder than anybody. The church right now in much of the world is sitting firmly on top of a tower of Babel. And until we fix that, it shouldn't surprise us in the least that what Jew, Greek, woman, man, slave, free, whoever, doesn't matter. We're going to increasingly find the truths of this world out in the wilderness. A utterly broken, wandering prophet in the this in this uh, in this case in the in the uh, magazine tablet, but there's and there's hope in that because that's how we get back to a common lingua franca. We, we actually will be healed through our suffering, through our pain. That's always been the commonality of the church, a hospital of sinners. Uh, and and we're way too squeaky clean now getting on our Sunday best. It's all, a, it's all a pose. It's all a look. We don't want anybody to see our wounds. I don't know. That's, that's what's really this woman who wrote this piece. She's like, you've, you, uh, the only way you'll believe me is if I let you see my wounds. That's a tale for a church. And since we don't hear it from our church all too often... That's why we're reading this one today, because we'll follow the truth wherever it leads. And in this day, it led us to her. Very well said. As you were talking, you know, when I've talked in the past about progressivism being a cult, and now I use the term spirit of the age. In many respects, what we're really talking about is paganism. The new progressivism is the old paganism. When, when Paul arrived in Ephesus in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, he caused a riot in that city. A literal riot. Where thousands gathered at essentially what was the, the city amphitheater to riot. Because even though there were so many different religions preached there, what, what Paul was preaching was a direct threat to their way of life because one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was located in Ephesus, the temple to Diana or Artemis. Why did they worship her at, at Ephesus? Why was she given a place above all the other dozens of, of, of entities that were worshipped there? 
because she was the ultimate power. She had, she could, they believed, could control their lives, determine good or positive outcomes, successes or failures, cures or illness. And Paul is preaching, even with, we have no record anywhere of Paul, like, specifically singling out Diana and Artemis as a false god. We don't have any record of that. And, and that's something to note, considering we know, in the, we know that Paul, shrinking violent? No. Not exactly. And so this isn't because the guy, I believe, was a practitioner of passive aggressiveness. Quite the contrary. And yet we have no record of him directly, directly going after Artemis or Diana as a false god. Didn't have to. He just proclaimed the real thing and the counterfeits understood what this meant. So why didn't they just gravitate to Jesus then if he was the ultimate power? Because Paul did not preach that kind of deliverance. He preached the deliverance from sin. And that all of your technological advancement, all of your community situations, all of your societal ills all pale in comparison to the cost of your own individual sin. And that these things are the cause because they're a collectivization of all of our individual sins and a manifestation thereof. And that the only way to access this power was to agree, follow me here now, was to agree that you were powerless. To humble yourself. That was folly. That was contrary to every other religious message preached in the ancient world. It is contrary to every other religious message preached in the modern one. It is contrary to the spirit of the age, technocratic, the science, progressivism, religion. Where it is all will to power. Christianity says, not my will, but your will be done. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, not me. God doesn't transfer that power. Meaning like I've pleased Diana, so that's why I'm rich. You mentioned the, the, how, the Tower of Babel that many churches sit on. What is the most popular, quote-unquote, Christian message preached in America today? What is it? Your best life now. You be rich. Prosperity. Be healed. We just had a president whose chief spiritual advisor is a total heretic named Paula White. This is her message. And that's the guy that's on our side. What do you think the spiritual message is on the other side? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If that's the spiritual mentor to the guy that is on our team, what kind of spiritual messages do you think are the foundation of the other team? 
We've got a flat-out heretic as the spiritual advisor of Trump. Good night. What do you think's going on over there? Well, we know because we're suffering under the weight of it. This is a tale as old as time. In many respects, a lot of us could have written Anne's piece. Maybe not as well for certain. And maybe not one of the reasons not as well as we have not had the pain be as personal as it is to her because of what she's lived through in her own family. But any of us that have read a history book for 10 minutes could have written this piece because there's nothing new under the sun. And that's why the core, mission, the core message of this show has been for the last several years. Revival or bust. This Christmas, if you are looking for, hey, what's the battle plan for winning 2022 and beyond so that we don't repeat what's gone on these last few years, but we stop it and we don't pass it on to future generations. That's why I wrote this book. Do what you believe, or you won't be free to believe it much longer. Available right now at Amazon.com. Both Kindle and audio versions available there as well. It is the battle plan for winning America's cold civil war that is happening as we speak, for winning the culture war in our time. This is how we take on the spiritual forces that we are up against. This is about more than just politics, and we're the generation, folks, this era right now, is going to be the one that determines America's future or if it has a future. All right, so get your copy today. It's got study guide questions if you want to do it in a group study a format as well. Do what you believe or you won't be free to believe it much longer. Available at Amazon.com right now. We got just over two minutes here, guys. Any final thoughts? Well, you know, the chief... She persevered enough in all that she went through to offer the testimony that she did. This could have been simply a thought in her head and not turned into a platform, could have kept it very localized. She wrote this because the truth will set you free. She realized that in her pain... There's a story for all. She refused, and and so there was in the pain. There was a light. The candle was lit, and and she didn't hide it under a bushel basket. No excuses. She told the story for the good of all. And when we talk about we the people on the show, it's your country, a republic. If you can keep it, you're being asked to do the same. You're not allowed to hide your light under your bushel basket. You're not allowed to have excuses because your excuses are probably nothing compared to, I watched the slow death of my son. Mm. So get busy living or get busy dying. I think what she described along the lines of revival or bust is actually in a lot of ways bust or busting. Present progressive tense. 
I think what she's describing is busting. Hmm. Now we can keep busting, uh, but are we going to have a revival after that? I certainly pray that, I, that, that that's, that's the case. Because we're going to keep busting and we're going to keep plumbing the depths of the rabbit hole until we do. Thanks again to Anne for an outstanding piece. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. John 317. On the Blaze Radio Network.